What's up, guys? It's the phenomenal AJ Styles. You're listening to the two-man power trip. Oh, my God. This is Joey Styles, and you're listening to the two-man power trip podcast. This is Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. This is Cody Rhodes, the prince of pro wrestling, and you are listening to two-man power trip. This is Jimmy Vine, the boogie Wooker man. Tell my people and my brothers and sisters, don't you dare miss John and Chad. Hey, everybody out there. This is the franchise Shane Douglas. Remember me? <laughs> well, guys, it's great to be on the show again. I appreciate you asking me back. So you said you were going to pinch yourself. I didn't know it was that kind of show now. I mean, if you guys are in the privacy of your own home, if you want to do these things. Good. How you doing, Chad? Hey, Johnny. Cool, man. What's going on? We ready to go or what? Okay. Hey, man. What's up, guys? This is Homicide. Oh, that's my homie. Homicide with a big homie club. Yeah, that would be it. Hey, this is David Penzer, and this is the two-man power trip of wrestling. Well, thank you, thank you. Hear me, fear me. I don't do many wrestling shows anymore, probably because I'm a bit ignorant. You guys probably know ten times more than I do. Look, Mean Gene, I can't be beat. I'm the greatest of all time. And I would say that. And every kid, I, they knew they could kick the out of me. Great talking to you guys. It's been your pleasure. <laughs> They've worked in and around the wrestling business. They've studied thousands of hours of wrestling, and now they bring to you the greatest legends, Hall of Famers, creative minds, and both current and future stars of pro wrestling. They are Primetime Pod and Chad, the two-man power trip of wrestling. Jameson's job used to be before he was here. What's he wiping himself with? A sock? Yeah, a sock. Snap the alligator's neck. Boom. <laughs> uh, he's a cruel man. He needs his clock clean. Oh, a couple of guys can do it. I suppose you condone that, too. As long as it's not me, it's fine with me. Sure. This is the two-man power trip of wrestling, and you are listening to episode number 265 of the two-man power trip of wrestling podcast, a podcast that you can catch two times a week and download it from any of the places that you get your podcast from, whether it's iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn Radio, Player FM, or my favorite, the Podomatic app. You never know who's going to be on the other end of the line with the two-man power trip of wrestling. And that is a moniker that we love to live up to. And if you didn't know by now, my name is Chad. And as always, I'm joined by my tag team partner, the one and only John Paz. And John, today on the show, we welcome the fabulous one as Steve Kern joins today's program. And if you know anything about Steve Kern, you know all about his history. You know all about the legendary run he had in championship wrestling from Florida, being a staple of the Florida wrestling scene, and also his time in one of the more infamous teams of the 1980s, the Fabulous Ones. And then moving on to the WWF later in his career as one of the standout gimmicky characters that Vince McMahon created in Skinner, the Alligator Man, the man with the mouthful of chaw, 
Or if you even want to go as far as to say you remember him as one of the many doinks in the mid-90s. He definitely was a role player at that point, but he is one hell of a pro wrestling trainer. And Steve Kern is here to talk about all of that stuff. Now, Steve Kern, you might remember as well, was in Florida Championship Wrestling, FCW, prior to its move over to NXT. And when we get to that point of the interview, you are going to be compelled by what Steve Kern has to talk about. And, John, this is one of those episodes where the duration is quite lengthy. And we always love those, and we never know where they're going to go. And just to kind of go inside the uh, behind-the-scenes part of the two-man power trip, this is really only supposed to be about a 30-minute interview. And we really blinked, and we did about 90 minutes with Steve Kern. And just talking about a few topics, uh, taking up a lot of that time with Dusty Rhodes and the WWE developmental scene, we really did not think we were going to go too much into the developmental stuff. But, oh, my God, when you hear what he has to say, it is uh, absolutely fantastic and absolutely fabulous, actually. But also his stories about Dusty Rhodes and Dusty Rhodes' uh, impact on his career and his life. Just so amazing, especially if you know our tie-in with Dusty Rhodes. He shares a story about talking to Dusty prior to his passing. That, To tell you the truth, it was actually bone-chilling to hear what he had to say and that uh, their goodbye uh, before Dusty's passing. It was, just, uh, it, it was an amazing story that Steve shared with us. But, John, I, I don't want to go too long here. I'm going to welcome you in, but I also want to say that there's a lot of crazy stuff going on behind the scenes, and we'll get into that in the next episode coming up. But, John, I'm going to have you throw it right to the interview as we get rolling here because this is a lengthy interview, but I know you got a lot to say about Steve Kern. So why don't you tell us a little bit about this interview and what we have to look forward to from the fabulous one, Steve Kern. Yes, Chad, back again at it, the two-man power trip of wrestling, and quite frankly, stepping up to the plate and hitting another home run as the fabulous one himself, the formerly known as Skinner, Steve Kern joins us, and wow, what an interview. Chalk one up to the epic series, if you will, quote-unquote, the another one of the epics, Basically go about an hour and a half on this one. What an awesome interview. And it's funny. When it was all said and done, we you know we agreed, and obviously Steve agreed. We got to have him back on again. It was, an hour and a half just wasn't enough time. I mean, wow. I mean, so much to, to cover with his career. So much great stuff. What an unbelievable interview. I mean, he's one of those guys, you give him, you know, one little inkling of, of a line or one little inkling of what could be a good story or you na- mention one guy's name and boom, he's off and running with a tremendous, awesome story and Everything he says, I mean, what a smart guy, what a brilliant guy, what an awesome talker, what a smooth talker as well. Just great stories, He's a great storyteller, but everything he says is just, it comes off as like, wow, like that's another amazing story, or wow, there's another, you know, maybe wrestling tale that we didn't quite know. So this was an awesome interview. I mean, I had a blast. You just think about all the topics that we discussed and everything that we got covered in this interview. Think about his time in the WWE. Most recently, you know, as far as from FCW to NXT, and then, you know, obviously working for Triple H and Vince, and kind of what his thoughts on that were, and we didn't quite know we were going to get the story we did out of that one, and he's got some great lines, and basically how he left the company, and one of the funniest lines we've ever had on the show, one of the best lines I've ever heard on the show, you will hear from Steve Kern when he's talking about why 
he left the WWE and why he's no longer there and why he is retired. So that is one of the best stories you will hear on this interview and quite possibly one of the best TNPT stories ever. That was just awesome stuff. Of course, we go into his time in the WWF where he played the avaunted Skinner character, where they came from, why he played that character, what it was all about. And then, of course, we talk a little bit about him playing the Doink character, one of many Doinks. Obviously, Matt Bourne was the original Doink, but he did play one of the Doinks. Obviously, if you watch WrestleMania 9, you can pretty much tell who it is, and it's not Matt Bourne. Obviously, he's the one Doink, but who's the other one? Yes, Steve Kern. We go into that story as well. So it's some really, really good stuff. And obviously, you know, you're talking to Steve Kern. You got to talk about Stan Lane and you got to talk about the fabulous ones. We talk about their chemistry, their time in Memphis, their time all over the globe. And we talk about, of course, those vignettes and those videos of the fabulous ones and what he thought about it and what he thought about the gimmick. You know, I don't really want to take too much time because this interview is so long and it's so good that I want to almost send you right to it. But I have to mention, of course, we get some Dusty Road stuff. Dusty is near and dear to our show and he's near and dear to Steve Kern as well. So it's just awesome that we get the stories we get out of Steve concerning Dusty. Really, really cool stuff. And of course, when you talk about Dusty, you got to talk about championship wrestling from Florida. We go into that in detail, talk about Steve's time down there and him coming full circle with FCW and working with Dusty and NXT coming up in Florida as well. So we go through the gamut. We go for all the way from Eddie Graham to Triple H and everything in between. So awesome stuff from Steve Kern. Sit back, relax, enjoy one of our best and one of the best interviews we've ever done. And now for some TMPT business. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at Two Man Power Trip and at Wrestling Pal. Please visit our website, tmptofwrestling.com. That is tmptofwrestling.com. Subscribe to us on YouTube. You can also subscribe to us on iTunes. While you're on iTunes, check out the feed for some legendary episodes featuring the living legend himself, Bruno San Martino, the late great American dream, Dusty Rhodes. Ray Mysterio Jr., Jeffrey McDivitt, Brutus the Barber Beefcake, Mr. Wonderful Paul Ondorf, AJ Styles, and so many others. Also, while you're surfing the web, check out WrestlingInc.com. Yes, that is WrestlingInc.com. They are the number one wrestling news source out there, so please check them out. Also, while on the internet, go to ProWrestlingTees.com. Yes, ProWrestlingTees.com is your superstore. If you are a super fan, and you can please check out our page while you're there, you can check out Tito Santana, Paul Orndorff, Coco Beware, Magnum TA, Buff Bagwell, and so, so many others. Follow along with the two-man power trip of wrestling in 2017 as we hit the road and we come to a town near you. May 20th, we hit Richmond, Virginia, then... Follow us to New Jersey as we hit the Legends of the Ring in Monroe. So please follow along with the two-man power trip of wrestling in 2017, because you never know where we may land. And now, without any further ado, a former AWA Southern World Heavyweight Champion, a former 17-time AWA Southern Tag Team Champion. You may know him as Doink, 
or with his run as Skinner. He's also known as the Fabulous One. He is Steve Kern. Please enjoy. one of the greatest guests to ever come through the two-man power trip of wrestling. When you think about people who have done it all and seen it all, he is definitely up there on the top of the list. You may remember him from such amazing tag teams like, hello, the Fabulous Ones, an absolute asset to professional wrestling, a seven-time AWA Southern Tag Team Champion, a 12-time NWA Florida Tag Team Champion, and an AWA Southern Heavyweight Champion. You also might remember him as Skinner, but the one and only Steve Kern joins the two-man power ship. Trip, thank you so much for coming on tonight. Well, I appreciate it. I'm glad to be on. We're, uh, we're so incredibly uh, happy to have you on because you've done so much in your career. And When we go through you know, your one sheet and we look at all the things you've done, there's so many places to start, and I really don't even know how to even go about getting into it. But, you know, with your career and what you've done, you've obviously been a huge asset to the next generation of professional wrestling. But what do you think it is that has made you stay with the wrestling business for so long and obviously pass on all that knowledge that you've had to the next generation of stars? Um, that's easy. It's passion. It's passion for something. It's not... It's not necessarily a calling, but it's something that you really love. I loved professional wrestling long before I became a professional wrestler. My dad was in the military, and I remember living in North Carolina and watching it on television there. And then I watched it in Florida and watched with Gordon Soley as I grew up. So it's just a passion. It's something I knew, I felt good about. And I just loved every minute of it and couldn't get enough, like a sponge. Wanted to soak as much as I could get up out of it. Oh, my gosh, yeah. And you definitely did because, like I said, you know, the territories that you went through, the names that you worked with, and all the people that you've passed through, uh, all the different territories and promotions, it's literally a Hall of Fame list. And I'm sure there's a lot of people that, you know, you can credit that maybe some of the fans and some of the listeners have never even heard of. But when you think back to the territory days, you think back to those uh, just, you know, maybe out-of-the-way places that you used to go, do you miss the old territory system and how professional wrestling used to be when you broke in? Um, I don't really miss it. That was like the very beginning of my career, and then it was in and through all the way up until the fabulous ones. I think that was probably the last run with the, with the territories. Um, it's not something I miss. It's just something that evolved. It's changed. Um, the way that the territories worked is when you when you worked the territory for a certain amount of time or if they just didn't feel like they needed you anymore, you just go and move to another territory. It could be one state away, and people had no idea who you were. But what you had to remember that in, in moving from territory to territory was 
was you had to start over again, like the audience had never seen you before. You couldn't come like you left. In other words, you couldn't get on television and act like you were over until you got over with those people. So it was a challenge. What made it exciting and what made it more educational was is you were in the same city 52 weeks a year. You would go on a routine of going to the same town on every Monday night, same town every Tuesday night. Well, those same fans watched you, and so you had to be different every Monday night, every Tuesday night. You had to change, and you couldn't go out there and just get caught in a rut. So you had to be very creative, and you had to work with really good people. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh, and there's no shortage of good people that I think you worked with. But one place I really want to start, and you talk about uh, things being a little different from that territory system, is kind of how you broke in. And there's one guy who I know has definitely uh, broken his fair share of legs for people getting into the wrestling business, and that is Hiro Matsuda, a guy that we don't hear about too much anymore because uh, obviously he uh, he didn't break that many people in after a certain time. But kind of share with us uh, some memories of Hiro Matsuda. And for those that don't know about Hiro Matsuda, if you can, kind of give us a little uh, bibliography, if you can. Well, the the time was different. You know, the era was different. Wrestling was protected. We we hid everything we did. We were like magicians, is my comparison. You didn't go out there and expose everything that you did. You you kind of like separated yourself. Like, okay, well, they might have not believed so much, but at the same time, they they were intrigued by it. Well, when I first started, you didn't just break into the wrestling business and start wrestling. You broke in by doing exercises. You broke in by guys that trained you, and they tested you. They wanted to see if you were going to make it because that you really liked it and wanted it or if you were just going to try something. So guys like Hiro Matsuda, um, Eddie Graham, Carl Gotch, um, I went through guys that basically when I started, they would take you in there and you'd do squats, you would do all these exercises, and you'd get in there and you would shoot with somebody that would beat you to death but not really hurt you. I don't know if that makes any sense. I mean, you know, the mat burns on your face, make you give up. I mean, you know, show you that there was a power in the wrestling, but then would not let you in on the inside of what was going on. And, it, and then that would go on sometimes for like three to six months. And then you would get the opportunity to be smartened up if you made it, and if you didn't, you would move on, or they'd run you off by punishing you. Harold Matsuda was one of those guys in Florida that did a lot of the punishment. He was um, a great Japanese wrestler. He knew a lot of submission holds. He was in unbelievable physical shape. He didn't just tell you to do squats. He stood there and did them with you, but at the same time, he pretty much stretched you and did it with a smile on his face. So he was one of those guys that you either loved and respected him at the end, or you kind of went, hey, what was that all about? <laughs> and that's more what I said. Why did you beat me up like that at the beginning? So anyway, long time ago. Oh, it's great. And like I said, you know, we don't hear that much about Hiro Matsuda anymore. And 
Uh, I think a lot of newer fans, they got to educate themselves because when we think about, you know, performance centers and training dojos and places that people go to grit their teeth to uh, make it in sports entertainment and pro wrestling, uh, well, you could have had uh, going through a door and seeing Hiro Matsuda waiting for you. And you mentioned Eddie Graham there, and obviously we know Eddie Graham may be one of the, the biggest creative geniuses to ever uh, have an influence in wrestling. But i got to just stick with Hiro Matsuda again for a second if we can. Did you ever see Hero okay. really uh, kind of get to it when it came to uh, a guy who maybe didn't have what it took and he uh, kind of made uh, some mincemeat of him uh, in pretty short fashion? Oh, yeah. I saw quite a few guys do that. I saw Bob Root do that. I saw um, Jack Busco do that. I saw Eddie Graham do that. And it was usually, the case was, was usually somebody was making light of the wrestling business. It was maybe a bodybuilder, maybe a power lifter, maybe a a football player or something like that. And they would go, you know, I know this is all fake, but I just want to try it out. And I saw Hiro Matsuda pretty much violently take people apart. I mean, you know, it was a protection. You protected your industry at that time. You protected... I was taught and raised here in Florida, and in Florida, you were taught respect the business, and not only you respect it, but make other people respect it also. Eddie Graham was a strict disciplinarian. Um, We had the word kayfabe back then, and it meant something. If heels were ever caught riding with baby faces, they were fired instantly. The the, um, wrestling business and the dressing rooms were off off limits to anybody other than wrestlers and referees. I mean, you know, we had separate dressing rooms, whereas guys would be on the other side of the building and you'd be on one side, they'd be on the other. So you came from opposite sides. There was never a chance for you to get together before the matches and talk it over. About as much talk over as you got is when they were checking you out and said, okay, let's check your hands and your feet. Uh Uh-oh. So about that, you got about five seconds to get anything you need to say, like, don't kill me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh, my God, yeah. I can't even imagine uh, what that's like. And, you know, talk about kayfabe. One of, I think, the, the greatest questions is, and I know even Bill After uh, wrote a book that basically pertained to it, but would you say kayfabe is dead or is uh, kayfabe just kind of dug deep there still in the inner circles of professional wrestling? I think I think there's a place for it, but I don't think it's as important anymore. I don't think the education, and I, I spent 44 years in this industry, so I feel I'm pretty confident to give my opinion. But as especially as an instructor and a teacher in my last seven years, is there's a place there when you want to respect it, but there's also a lack of respect for it to the point where people don't want to defend it unless they actually are wrestlers. And most of the time it's the ones that have gone through injuries and realize the reality of the business is not what, you know, people perceive when they look at it and go, well, we're going to call it this, fake, because we don't believe it. But when you're the athlete that goes through the punishment and you sustain a few injuries, and not necessarily caused by your opponent, could be just by circumstances, all of a sudden it becomes a little bit more important to you for them to respect what you do. 
So, kayfabe, I don't know if anybody knows the word anymore, <laughs> but, I mean, I spoke Carney, and I think the only people that know Carney is old-timers handing it down to maybe their grandchildren. My grandchildren speak Carney now, so, and I use it <laughs> when we're in places where I don't want anybody else to know what we're talking about. <laughs> That's uh that's pretty great. That's also pretty good if you want to get out of uh, doing some homework or uh, you got an assignment you want to uh, kind of dodge. Just speak a little carny, and you might be able to uh, to get around that. But, you know, that Florida territory is obviously now the thing of legend. I mean, WWE has definitely helped uh, educate a ton more fans to the Florida territory. And a lot of, you know, the, quote, historians and a lot of the keepers of kayfabe, you know, the old school fan of the old school, uh, you know, historian, I guess you could say, they love that Florida territory because it was you protect the business, you know the heels and the baby faces don't get along, you guys don't fraternize, uh, and we've heard some legendary stories. But kind of talk about that Florida territory, and obviously you're from Florida, it was a big deal when it was running. But uh, kind of you know again, just like here in Matsuda, educate the fans about that Florida territory and what kayfabe meant in that territory because it was such a, a popular thing and really an institution. Well, it's basically what did you feel in, in respect to what you did in the ring? I mean, you know, if you didn't have any self, you know, esteem or pride in what you did in front of audiences and things like that, you may not take it seriously. But you didn't last long in this territory. I saw a lot of guys come through this territory when I was just a young kid. And the dressing room is a learning tool at all times. And if you have your ears open and your mouth shut, you can learn a lot of things just by guy, other guys' mistakes. I mean, I saw the legend Bruno San Martino come to the Florida Territory and go out and have a match like he was in New York. Well, the one thing you learn in, in this industry, if you're really intelligent, is the audiences aren't the same. There's not the same people in the audience in New York as there are Tampa, Florida, or Miami, or Jacksonville, or Orlando. They're, it's just they've been watching different stuff, so they're educated differently. To watch Gordon Soley and Florida Championship Wrestling from the 60s, 70s, 80s, you're going to watch some serious wrestling with very little room for people to see through. And then in New York, you're going to see more nationalities brawl and just entertain, which was totally different from the territory of the NWA down in Florida. So the strictness was is self-pride. I mean, I sat in dressing rooms with guys. It's kind of like you go with a blink of an eye. You go from being the youngest guy in the dressing room and blink your eyes, and you're one of the oldest. But in that time period, your life experiences were... Wrestling in regionalized territories, you wrestled every night of the week, seven nights a week. Then plus, depending on the territory, you had televisions. In Florida, we only had one TV taping. It was on Wednesday morning. Tampa was on Tuesday night, but Miami was Wednesday night. So we did a TV taping that morning did interviews from about 12 to 2, got in cars and drove 
275 miles to Miami. Russell drove back, and the next day drove to Jacksonville. The thing about the, the trips was there's no communication back then. We didn't have cell phones. I mean, you know, I remember when CB radios became popular in, like, Tennessee territories and stuff, which was fun, but you still didn't carry on a conversation. So you didn't really know heels didn't know baby faces, and baby faces didn't know heels other than their time in the ring together. So it was mostly separated everywhere, and that was that's what made it stricter. I mean, you know, the audience, they figured, well, these guys must talk to each other. But that was kind of a, uh, a miss, you know, the meetup thing because we didn't have time to talk to each other. And then you wrestled seven nights a week, eight times, nine times a week, depending. I remember when Georgia, when Jim uh, Barnett had it, we wrestled seven times a week plus a TV on Tuesday, then a TV um, live in Macon, I mean, um, I mean, the TV on Saturday morning, then a TV live in Columbus, Georgia, and then another show that night. So you'd wrestle actually nine times a week there. So the education in regionalized territories was you had to be creative. You had to change things up. You had to be different every week. Plus, you had to do it every night. There was no getting hurt and being paid. If you got hurt and you couldn't work, you didn't make any money. So it made it a lot more important for you. Anyway, I'm probably getting off the tangent for you. I don't mean to do that, but oh no, my gosh, I'm years, by Forty-four it. years is hard to condense down. <laughs> oh, I, I'm just trying to soak it all in because this is a topic we've been dying to speak with somebody about in such detail. Because I mean, we love that Florida territory, and John and I both being from New York. And uh, the Northeast and uh, growing up strictly on WWF, I mean, when we found out about all these other territories, it was like, you know, oh, my God, there's this uh, just amazing uh, footage out there, this history in that Florida territory is so alluring. You know, one of the things we hang our hat on with the show is that we were able to interview Dusty Rhodes right before he passed away, and that's all we talked about was Florida. I mean, it's literally from the first second to the last second, it was just Florida. But if you can, can you kind of talk about Dusty's impact on the Florida Territory, because obviously that's where he became the American dream and really went on to be the icon that he ended up being for the rest of his career. Yeah, I could more than talk about the impact. He was a really close friend of mine. I give Dusty Rhodes, like, if if I was to tell you who Dusty Rhodes was to me, he was my big brother. And that's a close family member. And he defended me in certain circumstances, but he was mean to me other times. He bullied me sometimes, you know, but it was just to give me character. He never did anything to ever hurt me in the business, Um, but he really made his name here in Florida, and the reason was is Eddie Graham, like you said earlier, was a genius. In those days, he was such a creative guy, and when he got a character that could go out and have the charisma that Dusty had. Dusty touched the hearts of people during um, segregation, during, you know, racial tension. He would be out there doing promos, and it didn't matter what color you were, you were a Dusty Rhodes fan, and that's because he made you feel comfortable supporting him. He wasn't intimidating the guys going to the wrestling matches because if they're going, 
oh, wow, that guy looks better than me. I don't want my girlfriend or my wife to like him. I don't like that guy. Like a Jack Briscoe, maybe, just a handsome stud kind of looking guy. Dusty was kind of like a friendly kind of looking guy. He was the kind of guy that you wanted to to be around. And his promos, probably the biggest magic of the American dream. I sat with my jaw sitting on my chin on the table at Gordon Soli's time after time and just listened to Gordon, I mean, listen to Dusty do his promos. And we had to do them back to back. We had like two hours to do seven promos, which covered West Palm on Monday, Tampa Tuesday, Miami Wednesday, Jacksonville Thursday. Friday was either Tallahassee or Fort Lauderdale. Saturday was somewhere around Tampa, like the Sun Dome, something like um, Bayfront Center, Lakeland Civic Center. And then Sunday was Orlando. And back to Monday was West Palm. And he could do his promos without a second take, boom, 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 and they were all different. I was mesmerized. I rode with Dusty. I uh, I idolized him when I was a young guy because I just couldn't imagine how he had such charisma. And plus his promos were so good and mine were so horrible that I just wanted to be more like him. You know, so I spent a lot of time with him. I got great stories I can't tell you on the air about him, but at the same time, <laughs> but at the same time, he was one of the greatest wrestling characters to ever come through the state of Florida. The biggest name, probably from the time he got here, right on throughout, but just prior to him was like the great Malenko, Eddie Graham. So he had some pretty big boots to fill, and he did an unbelievable job. So. I can't, I can't put him over strong enough because if here again, remember, instead of once a week in Hawaii, once a week in New York, once a week in Texas, once a week over here, it was once a week in Florida, boom, 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 same towns every Monday night, every Tuesday night, same audiences, sometimes bigger, sometimes less, depending on the time of the year, like school starting. And Dusty, was uh, he was magic. You always wanted Dusty on the main event. Nobody's fighting over the main event, you know. Everybody wants, hey, I hope the dream's on the card tonight. So. Yeah, and you'd be riding on the end of a lightning bolt without a doubt. But, you know, hero, you say all that, and you say he's like a big brother, you know, and you said he was kind of like, you know, the guy you looked up to in the business. Do you have a favorite Dusty uh, memory? Because there's got to be so many that can race through your head, but what's one that really jumps to the front? Well, I, you know, there were so many, and, and one that jumps to the front, I don't, I, I'd rather hold back, but the, the second best one is Dusty liked to be able to get over on other people. And I had traveled some territories where it was pretty hardcore. And there was, you know, you spent a lot of, and I had traveled up in Pensacola out of Mobile working for the Fields family and got around Ken Lucas and Ricky Gibson and a couple of those people. And, got, <laughs> and I learned some things. And one time we were driving down, <clears throat> going down the road. I'm not even sure where we're going, but in the middle of the road on the interstate, there's long yellow lines and there's long, there's these smaller white lines. 
And I already knew the answer to this because of the guys from some, either Lucas or Gibson or somebody told me from another territory, and I actually got out and walked them off. But I said to Dusty, I said, how long do you think those white lines are in the middle of the interstate here? And he's looking, he looks at me like, you know, have you run out of things to talk about? And I said, no, how long do you think these white lines are? And he goes, uh, I'll do my dusty. He goes, hey, baby, these white lines, they ain't no more than three feet long. And I said, there's no way. I said, them white lines are 15 feet long if they're an inch. And he goes, there's no way in hell them white lines are 15 feet long. They ain't no more than three feet long. Speed limit was 70 miles an hour back then. We're probably doing 80. So Dusty decides we're pulling off. He said, I'll bet you two grand the Tim White lines are no more than five feet long. So he was going to give me a margin, but now he's wanting to bet money. So I said, okay, just get stopped. Pull over. So we stopped probably middle of the night, one or two o'clock, coming back from somewhere. And he gets out. He had cowboy boots on and no shirt on. He's got his boots, his pants, jeans tucked down in his boots, and he gets out there and he says, one, and he put his other boot in front of himself, two, he got to like 12, and he's going, man, this is some good shit. And as we get to like almost 15, he looks at me and he goes, oh, man, we got to pull this on a bunch of people. All of a sudden, he's turned what my two grand was for reward of having it 15 feet into, we're going to get other people with this. So, that was just kind of a simple story about Dusty, but he was a great guy. I mean, you know, funny, he he, he just did things different than any anybody else I was ever around. And he always had the ability to make me smile. Three days before Dusty passed away, he called me, and he left an answer machine message on my phone. And I'll just tell you basically what he said was, Hey, baby, I just wondered about you. Hope everything's good. I know you're all right. Having a good time with them grandchildren. I love you. Talk to you soon. And then I sent a picture of me and him back to him, texted. I didn't even talk to him on the phone, but I sent a picture back of me and him where he's in a tie-dye T-shirt, and he's got his arm around me, and I've got some belt on, and we're just standing as young guys, you know, and he wrote by Eddie, and he said back to me, he said, I love that tie-dye T-shirt. <laughs> I'll send the picture to you, and that way it proves what I said. Anyway, <laughs> that's, uh, wow, that's unbelievable. Yeah, and, you know, that's that, it's so fitting to know, you know, that that's what Dusty was thinking about, you know, a few days before he passed away. He just wanted to touch base with you because you guys obviously had a special relationship. And that is so awesome. And I know John, you know, has always talked about he he saved Dusty's voicemail to him because he felt like, you know, it was like this connection that he made just by the phone call. And it seemed like he could just, as he always said, reach out and touch it, baby, just by going through the glass or yeah. going through the phone. But that is uh, that is one hell of a story, and we appreciate you sharing that. Yeah. And, uh, I, still, I, still you know, have, I still have the message on my answer machine, and, you know, every once in a while I come across it, and I just play it just to hear it. Because you hear his voice. I mean, you know, it's like wrestling is kind of an unusual business when you cross over as much area as it does, especially worldwide. And 
you make somebody friends that you get so used to, and then you're not, they're not around anymore, and then you make other friends. But those old friends were never enemies. I mean, you know, they just moved on and went different places. I was at Wrestling Con over in Orlando at WrestleMania, and I'm looking around the room, and I'm seeing all these people, and I'm realizing I know four generations. I, I know... I know some of the older guys. I know the guys my generation. I know some, which is the older generation. But then I know some of the guys that are younger. And then the very beginning, I know the beginners. I mean, you know, it's part of the beginning for them. So it's like I see so many changes, and then I'll see somebody that stands out. I sat beside um, Tony Atlas. Tony hasn't changed a bit. I mean, Tony said he still looks the same. His body still looks the same. He still, you know, his face, everything. He and he talks the same. He's, he's, you know, he's a great guy. And I knew him since the Charlotte days. I was in Charlotte in 1974, and that's when I met him. Anyway, he was breaking in. So, just reel me in when you need to. Sorry, I get carried away. No problem at all. And it's funny you said that about Dusty. Obviously, you know, we, we had him on and we were able to make a connection with him. But, you know, we, we weren't friends with him. We didn't really know him that well. But he left a voicemail for me. And I just, you know, I always kept it and saved it because he just felt like, you know, you, even though he didn't know me, but he was very friendly to me. He, he made me feel like I knew him. And such a special guy and, and a very rare kind of guy can do that to people, you know, that he doesn't know. Or, and I could see that's why he had all that charisma. And that's why the fans fell in love with him because, you know, I'm just a you know a, 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 a you know wrestling fan, or as he said, a historian. You know, talking to him on the phone a few times. So that's his amazing impact on wrestling. Oh yeah, yeah, he did. I mean, he had an amazing impact on my life and my career, and I, I learned a lot from him. I know um, Hulk Hogan, Terry Bollea, um growing up. He, we grew up in um, we went to junior high and high school together. And he was a big-time fan, and he sat in the same seat at the Armory every Tuesday night. And I know he got a lot of motion from Dusty. He picked up a lot of Dusty's charismatic movement. He picked up a few things Dusty did in the ring because it, he just watched him. And he realized, hey, that works. <laughs> that What he's doing works. It doesn't always have to be right here, but it can be other places. So... He was very, very influential. Most guys won't give credit where credit's due, but reality is, is you pretty much steal everything from everybody else that came before you. They've already done it. You may redo it, or you may do it better, or you may do it a little bit different, but you really are emulating somebody that's already done this. I mean, I saw a change as it evolved into a little bit more high-risk movement and guys started using their bodies a little bit different, not like they were wrestling seven nights a week, but maybe three nights a week and, you know, things like that. But reality is is they got to stick with staying on their feet in our era and not getting hurt because if you got hurt, you didn't get paid. That is a very, a very good point. Obviously, nowadays, you see guys getting injured pretty much weekly. It's almost a little bit of an epidemic lately with injuries. Well, you know, I was there at FCW, and we didn't have a doctor. 
We didn't have a trainer. We just had, you know, referees. And as we developed forward into it and we started picking up more students and, you know, holding maybe 60, 70 talent in there at a time, all of a sudden my upper bosses decided to put a doctor in there, uh, more of a physical trainer than the actual doctor, but had a capability of recognizing things to the point where if that's hurt bad enough, you're going to go to the hospital with it. And uh, to me, I just say that as an old timer, you just open up a can when you do that a little bit of, you know, the business isn't easy and you're going to have some bumps and bruises. And once somebody's standing there saying, um, well, he needs to ice that down and he doesn't need to do this anymore today, then it kind of takes, I don't know, maybe the thrill of teaching somebody that would do it no matter how bad they're hurt, or maybe it's just the passion that I mentioned earlier that it's not always there now because if there is so many people that have the opportunity to say, hey, I hurt my back or I hurt my neck or I hurt my ankle or I hurt my knee or I hurt any part of my body and I can't go out there. And to me, it's, it's really important for their safety, but at the same time, it takes that daredevil stuff away from everybody, I think, more. And, you know, like I said, four generations of wrestling and probably two and a half and then teaching my last, I've seen it evolve into the right mode. I've seen it evolve to more safety. I've seen it evolve to more doctors and medicine and, and help and stuff like that. But the business has changed with that kind of like emotion too to where it's more – corporate looking to me than it is, you know, the old just blood and guts, kick ass Tennessee wrestling somewhere, you know, with the moon dogs. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely want to get back to Tennessee and the moon dogs for sure. But I want to ask with current wrestling, you said you, you've been a trainer, you're an FCW. Would you ever pull a guy aside, maybe like a Seth Rollins and say, Hey man, you got to almost bring it back just a notch because you're getting injured, you might be injuring somebody else, or you know, you're going to be action out of action and you might miss uh, WrestleMania or you might miss this big event. Do, would you ever yeah. tell him something like that? Well, of course I would. I tell all the talent that. I told Kurt Angle. I, I was a road agent. I was a road agent for five years before I took over the developmental territory. And I pull guys aside and say, hey, listen, you know, this is just advice. My advice is, you know, what you're doing out there to impress the people or impress your bosses or whatever is not necessary. You can do it with something that they call emotion. If you wrestle with emotion, it's ten times better to me than wrestling with just movement. Movement is something everybody's capable of doing. Some do better than others. But emotion is bringing your heart to you, with, with you to the ring. And it's a proven thing that not the greatest wrestlers in the industry through my decades were great wrestlers to the point where they were scientific or they were shooters. They were people that understand the motion, like Dusty Hulkster. They understand moving people emotionally didn't mean making 50,000 moves to get them there. It was just putting your heart into it. So I pulled a lot of guys aside and told them things. And those are mostly guys that, you know, whether I thought they were going to make it or not, I just felt compelled to add my input. 
I had guys that tried to be funny, and they worked off of trying to be funny people in the ring right off the bat. And I said, you know, I would I would pull them aside and say, listen, Marvin Bailey Circus only has so many clowns, and they're not the ones that make the real money. You got a choice here. Are you trying to be a clown? Because there's only room for so many clowns or people that think they're funny or try to compel to be funny. But you're going to make more money with a serious attitude and trying to be more you and bringing it to the wrestling than you are being trying to fake being funny. And so that and the injury thing, smaller guys have this complex that I'm not big enough. I need to do things to enhance my my ability by doing high-risk movement. To me, they're plenty big. <laughs> you know, you're, you're taken away from it by trying to be that high-risk movement guy. And your career goes from, I don't know, maybe five years now to two years or from eight years to four years because it once you develop something that is so spectacular that the people see it and it's, it, it just makes them want to see it again, guess what? <laughs> they're going to see it again, and then they're going to see it again, and they're going to see it again until you crash and burn or you survive through it. And in my experience, most of them crash and burn, and it's when you least expect it. I mean, you know, the most injuries I've had in the ring were like the last move or something that was so simple that I go, I can't believe I did that and broke my finger. I mean, you know, so, you know, times change. Definitely, and I feel like injuries have gotten worse and worse, whether it be neck injuries or shoulder injuries. I feel like maybe they're taking too many chances, and it's really starting to affect everyone in the business. Well, there's a really simple answer for that, and... My answer totally about wrestling is it's an opinion. Everybody has an opinion on professional wrestling. Everybody's got their experience. It gives them that opinion. But the reason they're taking so many risk moves and so much more is because it's the same thing as movies. Exactly. When when I was a younger guy, they had um, action heroes. It was Clint Eastwood. Um, even as far back as John Wayne but Charles Bronson, Steve McQueen, and then it evolved into the Van Dams and the Steven Seagals, and then it evolved into even farther. But if you watch the, the, the way it started is the bad guy would, evolve, would elude the good guy the whole movie, and if it was Clint Eastwood, he might have a couple of fights or shoot a guy or two on the way, and it would be a big build-up to the very end, and then the bad guy would get beat by the good guy. Well, if you watch the way action movies have developed, there was maybe one death in that movie, maybe two deaths, maybe four or five people got beat up, and then it went forward, and now all of a sudden you're killing 20 people in the first five minutes. You're shooting down helicopters with dart guns. You're blowing up submarines with the bazooka. You've got fire going everywhere, and you're diving out of the fire if you're an action hero now. And it's continuous, continuous, um, like Fast and Furious movies and stuff. It's nonstop action. Well, that's if you put an old action movie beside a new action movie, 
young people would look at you and go, how did you watch that boring stuff? The old people would tell the young people, said, well, it was good then. And so what's happened is the young people of the new generations of wrestling are trying to go out and, and do something or be something that nobody else has been. That's pretty difficult, especially with as much history that's you know that's out there now. You couldn't go into a territory and see old wrestling matches anywhere. Now you can turn on television. You can watch the history of Florida Championship Wrestling. You can watch maybe Texas Wrestling. You can watch all these wrestling. So now you've got all those options, and they get overloaded, and they watch that stuff, and so they're all of a sudden going, you know what, if I can jump from the top corner and do a spin and then land on the table right next to the announcer and then dive over that rail right over there and not kill myself, they're gonna, everybody's going to like that. Yeah, that that's a bad mentality to me, but that's what they're forced into doing nowadays, more or less is why it's gotten to be a lot more high risk. That's definitely. No, no, I definitely, definitely agree. It's like uh, Fast and the Furious, those movies are, you know, a little bit overboard. They can kind of simplify it. Maybe like uh, old school John Wayne and the Searchers. You know, you, they, you, gotta, you can simplify it a little bit. Well, <laughs> I, the, the, there's, no, there's no way they can simplify where they're at in history. So there's no way you can come on with the John Wayne and one character goes out there and, you know, walks with a little bit of a, a lean and, you know, just beats up a few people. I remember being, as a young guy, being in a movie theater here in Tampa with Dick Murdoch. I know you got to remember that name from the past, but oh, Dick yeah. Murdoch, oh, man, he was, a, he was a serious John Wayne fan. And we're in the movie, and we watched this movie, The Cowboys. It had just come out, and Bruce Dern shot John Wayne and kills him in the movie, right? And Dick Murdoch got up and stood up right in the middle of the movie and goes, that's bullshit, and walks out of the movie. He was going to put up with John Wayne dying in the movie, but he was going, that Bruce Dern. I mean, he hated Bruce Dern. I said, it's a movie. The guy was an actor. <laughs> but he was, serious about, he was serious about John Wayne. Nobody kills John Wayne like that. So, anyway, times change. Bruce Durham was hated for a long time for that. I know that. Oh, gosh. Yeah, yeah. But it was one of those movies that it, what it brought was it wasn't a lot of different actions and stuff like that. It brought emotion. If you watch the movie and try to relate to the time, if you see Bruce Dern's actions when he's been beat up by John Wayne, an old man, and he's, you know, he's like humiliated and he's got the gun on him and he's telling him to turn around and he's gritting his teeth and it's going like, man, this looks like Eddie Graham working against Johnny Valentine. <laughs> this is awesome. <laughs> yeah. you know, with FCW, and if I could just take it back to there for a second, yeah, you know, SCW kind of was carrying on the tradition of the old championship wrestling from Florida. Did you feel like in your role you were kind of taking that Eddie Graham role with FCW all those years later? Well, yeah, of course I did. I mean, I have a picture of Eddie standing in front of the old sportatorium where we filmed television, and on the window it said Deep South Sports, and that was Cowboy Luttrell. 
And this is when Eddie Graham kind of like took it over. And he was changing it to Florida. I mean, the championship wrestling from Florida, I believe, at that time. Me, Bill DeMott had the territory for the developmental in Georgia that was called Deep South Sports. And then there was one in Louisville at OVW. And I I related to that, like, they closed Bill down, they took it away from Danny, and they put everything right in my lap. And I, I kind of felt like going down to the sportatorium and <laughs> standing in front of that sportatorium window going, well, it's not deep south anymore, and I got a bunch of ghosts that are going to be watching me from Hiro Matsuda to Jack Briscoe to Eddie Graham. I mean, you know, and the list keeps getting longer. But I got to do something here. So I ran it. I ran FCW the same way they ran it back in those days. I hunted for any place that would let us start flea markets, bars. We started in some of the worst places guys could ever get any education. But guess what? It was fun of them. It was in front of live audiences. And that's where you get your real education. You don't go to school and get an education. You jump in the water and you start swimming in front of the audience. And you either drown or you become a shark. And then that's the way you really kind of like learn the wrestling business. So they got to experience a lot of live events. And my main concern was having a TV here. So they had the option of learning a little bit about TV and then having live events. They had to be there. They had to be able to, you know, perform in front of audiences that had no idea who they were. Guys like Seamus, Dolph Ziggler, they, they stepped out on at flea markets. They stepped out in front of high schools. They stepped out in front of armories all over the state. And maybe 20 people there, maybe 30 I don't know that guy, big red-headed guy, or whoever it was. I mean, you know, at that time, um, they they just were, you know, people that nobody had ever seen before. And we weren't allowed to use the WWE logo. So I'm not only trying to tell people this is what wrestling's about right now, I'm also trying to not say that they're WWE, but saying they're headed that way. So... It kind of became, okay, it's Steve Kern's reputation. And where I went, I mean, Steve Kern got in the armories because I was blocked by independents all over the state. I mean, nobody wanted me here. Nobody wanted me running live events in the state of Florida. There was guys that ran from Miami to West Palm. There's guys in Jacksonville. There's guys in Sarasota. This guy's all over the state and everywhere, Crystal River, they blocked me. I couldn't go. I couldn't go to the Armory. Um, no, we have an exclusive. We have this other group in here. And then it ended up where it was, okay, well, now who's going to outsmart each other? And that's when I went to the Armory, pulled my ace, when I said, listen, my dad was a two-time prisoner of war, Germany and Vietnam. I'm the son of a prisoner of war for eight years in Vietnam, and you're going to tell me that I'm blocked to come into an armory, a government building, I'll go. I'll do something to go over your head. And, and I met a guy in Jacksonville that was in charge of him, actually St. Augustine, and he opened up the doors to every armory in this state to me. And they got rid of the good old boy system that had been embedded 
by small independent guys that were trying to protect their little territory. They didn't realize I wasn't trying to come in and smother them out. I just had to run live events in the same building. So anyway, that's how, that's how it kind of became Eddie Graham's territory. You had to kind of like push your way in and, and just kind of say, hey, I'm not going to back down. I'm coming into this territory and working it. So that's what we did. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And FCW made its mark, and it became pretty damn popular, and obviously with the WWE affiliation, not the logo, obviously, but the affiliation. So how does FCW kind of grow and then grow, and all of a sudden FCW becomes NXT? Well, you know, you never really know how certain things happen. I mean, you know, you're only limited to so much information. But what my belief was is they saw what we had done. But they didn't see the beginning. They saw after it had been a five-year buildup. And I was going to Kissimmee and running shows in Kissimmee and bringing in 2,500, 3,500 people. And they're looking at it like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. <laughs> They're, they're not struggling here now. They're actually promoting. And I think what it, they felt was this could be bigger if we were to back it and dump money into it. But, you know, um, I think Triple H had a vision after visiting a professional football camp. Um, I don't know if it was in New York or wherever, but he envisioned more the WWE having something like that in the old-style territory. The change of command in the WWE went from John Laurinaitis and the talent relations area that was in control of all the talent over to more Triple H. And when you change coaches, you change teams also. And I think it was when you know when it was when it came back down to me, they said, "Well, what do you want to do?" I mean, they were very courteous and very respectful to me, which I appreciated. I grew up in this business, and I've moved from territory to territory, and it was always not, not always on the best conditions. I got fired in territories. I quit in territories. I walked out in um, Louisville, Kentucky on a sellout with Stan waving at the fans as we went out the front door there. I mean, you know, went to the AWA. So, you know, the the idea of, um, the transformation from FCW to NXT was to make it bigger, make it more important. But that puzzled me because it lost the concept of being new to me. I said, "Well, I thought you wanted to develop character. I mean, develop talent and get them ready, and then let them come and be something brand new they've never seen before, like the Sheamuses and like the um, guys that." came up in the air right there. Okay, well, well, now they didn't mind exposing them. I mean, you know, FCW was in Europe for years, but it wasn't in the United States. And they decided there's another way to make money with it or another way to do it. And they wanted to go forward, and they go, well, what do you want to do? And I, they go, name your job. What do you want to be? And I looked at them, I go, I've never had to come up with my own job and make it up. So I went for a year when I traveled back and forth to Orlando and slowly got pulled back a little bit more and a little bit more. And to be perfectly honest and, you know, making sure everybody understands that I was burning out teaching wrestling. 
I've taught so many people to be a wrestler. I think that i got to have the Guinness World Book of Records. My first student was Tracy Smothers, um, <laughs> actually a full-time student. But I worked out with guys, Tony Atlas sitting beside me at the wrestling concert. You know, you taught me to drop kick. The crackers had you come down and teach me to drop kick. You remember you taught me to drop kick. And I started thinking, oh, my God, I really am old. If I taught Tony Atlas how to drop kick. But, but you know, my education on teaching other people spanned for so much of a time period that I got to the point where I started seeing less guys with passion, more guys that were from different situations, nothing wrong with it, but it's harder to teach somebody that doesn't love it. If you were to come to me and say, what would be my best background for getting into this industry? I'd say, are you a wrestling fan? And they say, yes. I mean, are you a, a fanatic? Do you watch it and study it and imagine doing the moves and all that? So yes, and that's what your background should be. It doesn't necessarily have to be a great athletic background. You think Jerry Lawler was a great athlete? <laughs> He wasn't a great athlete. He was a wrestling fan. He was so up Jackie Fargo that he loved Jackie Fargo, and he just studied the business, and he became a great talent. He became a great draw in the Tennessee Territory. But it wasn't because he was an amateur wrestler turned professional or a great football turned professional. It was because he had that passion. So when it came time for me, I had a contract that went from December to December. And as the time period went from less years to less years at the end, you know, they wanted to make changes. Well, we want to cut your pay because you're not doing everything. So that's fine. Well, we want you to move to Orlando. And I can't do that. I'm in my 60s. I live in Tampa. I'm Mr. Florida. And I know the best place to live. Nobody knows this territory better than me. I could draw a road map of this state, and Tampa is where I want to live the rest of my life. And so I'm not going to move 80 miles to the east into a tourist trap and be stuck there when I need to be in my home more. You know what I mean? So I said, I don't want to live there. And then the end came, and I said, this is great. I'm glad it's over, but now it's time for me to step back. And then said, well, we're not going to renew your contract. And I hugged him and said, thanks. I've been waiting for the, I've been waiting for the end. I didn't want to quit because I heard a guy tell me one time, he says, don't ever quit. Make them pay you to the end. And so when they said they're not doing it, I said, okay, thanks. Thanks. I've been waiting for this a long time. <laughs> That's a great way to, to hang it. It's like, oh, thank God. Uh, yeah. I didn't have to quit. And you, guys, you guys didn't renew me. Yeah, I'm retired. That's the time to retire. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. And, you know, you mentioned Jerry Lawler for a second there, and you said, you know, said he was a fan. i got to take it back just a bit to Jerry Lawler's, you know, big territory, obviously Gary Jenner as well, and that's CWA in Memphis. Cause we kind of, you know, glanced over it a little bit, but I wanted to talk about the fabulous ones, and that's just so fascinating to me because that tag team was so over but the vignettes always got to me. They were always so, you know, they were a little weird and a little strange in a way. What was the deal with the fabulous ones and those vignettes and that territory and really getting over? 
that's easy. That's that's an easy example to explain. It was like it was timing. It was timing. MTV had just started, really gotten off the ground. They're showing MTV videos to music all the time. Very popular. People just sit and watch the videos. I mean, you know, one band after another, whatever. Jerry Jarrett was a guy that ran that territory. He was a creative guy. He wanted to re revamp the old Fargo brothers, the fabulous Fargos. And he was looking for somebody to do it with. Well, Stan Lane and I just kind of fit that bill. Um, both from Florida. Both looked a little bit different than the Tennessee guys. So, and we looked a lot like each other. So he just started playing around with the idea of doing vignettes, doing them to music and stuff like that. We did some ZZ Top. We did some uh, Michael Jackson, whatever was popular. We did something that either was close to what they did or something that was just way off the chart. Kind of, It was kind of risky. It's almost like introducing male strippers for the first time. You're not going, well, wait a minute. I don't know if I like these guys. But they gave us Jackie Fargo, and that was the key thing. They gave us a guy that was a legend there. He was over like like a dusty roads of Florida, and no matter what he said, everybody loved. And he goes, he put a seal on us and said, these are my boys. They do what I tell them to do. When they do stuff out here, that's because I'm telling them to do that. And that's kind of what made the people like us. And then instead of just going on television and beating two guys that had no name, it really wasn't that talented, and it wasn't a good match, but you got over, we are showing videos. We are showing videos of us in limousines or motorcycles or something like that. And, you know, people saw it as a different approach. They said, oh, wow, these guys are different. Let's go see them. And that's kind of what sparked the whole thing. And then it became very much imitated. I mean, and that's the first form of flattery is when people start wanting to do the same thing you're doing, go, hmm, this must be working. <laughs> I remember when we went to the AWA from um, Jared, and all he said was videos. Vern asked me in the dressing room, first thing he walks up to me, he goes, I don't know what it is. Are you guys heels or are you guys baby faces? Dad, I'm said, what do you want? And he goes, what do you mean? I said, I work for you. How many things you want me to be? Right. Well, I, I, I learned never to close that door. You know, sometimes guys say, are you a baby face? Oh, I'm only a baby face. It's like, goodbye. I always said, I'm anything you want me to be because I work for you. So we started out with the Road Warriors. And it was a, a nightmare because they were supposed to be the heels, but they were over because of Chicago and places we went. And it, it was a struggle. But it worked out in the long run. I mean, it made it very, very controversial. So, you know, Tennessee was a great education, though, because they seen it all there. And once you could do some stuff there, you could go take that anywhere. That's definitely true. And you and Stan were a great combination, great chemistry. How did they put you two together? Um, actually, it was just... Jerry Jarrett came up with the idea, and he approached both of us. Actually, Stan was a heel. I was working against him at the time, and so in small towns and stuff. But, you know, I says, I'm looking at you guys, and you guys look a lot alike. And I'm thinking maybe not twins, but 
like a real tag team, almost like brothers, but not brothers. So, I mean, it was really Jerry Jarrett creation. Anybody else that takes credit for it's not telling the truth because it, he's the one that owned the territory. He's the one that put it together. He's the one that promoted it. He's the one that pushed it. He's the one that made it happen. We just did the characters, and I mean, you know, we were very fortunate that we blended so good. And there was a, there was an obvious. I mean, you know, I have, I've had some incredible tag team partners, and I mean, you know, probably seventy percent of my career has been in tag matches with guys from everywhere. And, some of the greatest talent in the world. I mean, you know, when you look back, you go, I wasn't great. I just worked with great guys. <laughs> good thing, too, because they made me look good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure a lot of guys are probably saying that about you, too. So it's a, it's a good, you know, it's a good mix. Well, there's probably a lot more telling stories about things I did to them in the ring, like, calling things and not doing it just to laugh and stuff. But Ted, Ted DiBiase can tell a great story about me because we had a match and I called this really long high started off with one tackle drop flat. And then it went on to a real elaborate thing. It made me call it again. And when we did one tackle, he dropped flat. I just dropped flight flat on his back. He said, get out of this. And now he's all confused because he'd had all of this to do in his mind, and it all stopped right away with me sitting on his back. It was just a big joke to begin with, but it just kept the humor, and I was—I had a lot to do with humor. <laughs> oh yeah. And you know, speaking of humor in a, in a somewhat way, you mentioned the Moon Dogs before. Did you have a lot of fun wrestling those crazy guys down there, man? No, no. <laughs> that was a fight for your life. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, because it was the thing about being over, and we were climbing a ladder. We were making an establishment, and theirs was a trip through. And the same was with the sheep herders. Now, sheep herders were a lot better. It was Luke and Jonathan Boyd back then because they understood coming through a territory. I mean, coming through, as you came through for a certain period of time, you got over, got pushed, then you made it to these guys, and then these guys had battles with you back and forth. Then you went through various types of matches, even like managers up in cages and Jimmy Hart tied to a pole, whatever it was. But the idea was is that inevitably you were going to move on and we're going to stay here. And so sometimes they didn't see it that way. Sometimes they saw, well, if we go out there and do this, maybe it'll work out. And sometimes it's a struggle out there. I mean, we had, I think we invented hardcore wrestling during that era because I saw it later on with students like Mike Awesome was my student that taught him in ECW, and I'm going, yeah, we invented that in Tennessee a long time ago. Anyway. That is, there's a lot of truth to that because when Paul E., Paul Heyman, uh, Paulie Dangerously was down there in Tennessee. You know that he took a lot of aspects, and you could tell, also from Florida too, but you could tell he was taking little bits from here and there and, and kind of, like you said, putting it into ECW. Absolutely, and it was something different. And, you know, people want to see different things sometimes. And kind of the opposite end of the spectrum, not really, you know, the hardcore stuff, but wrestling the original Midnight Express. Obviously, this is before Stan becomes a key cog in that wheel, but what was it like wrestling the midnight? What was it like? Um, Dennis Condre was a little um, touchy. He didn't, I, I'm 
I'm considered in the wrestling business, if you were to categorize me, I'd be over on the stiff class. And on the stiff class, it was guys that were like, um, I'll give you another example, Honky Tonk, Wayne Ferris. He didn't really like me either because I was a little bit too excited, a little bit in, a little bit too much into what I was doing. And so, man, you know, they came into it with a different attitude. So Midnight Express, Randy All, I think, was his partner at the time. He is all right, but Dennis was, uh, I just want to say that he wasn't a big fan of mine, <laughs> for sure, because <laughs> I buzz you. I mean, I come to work, and I don't mind you dishing out. I mean, you know, but come on, I can't. I can't get into just barely touching and dancing. I mean, you know, we're going down. And that was what kind of sparked him in Tennessee was Kevin Sullivan and I brought an angle off of Atlanta TV where he had turned on me. And we went into Tennessee with him. When they saw me and Kevin wrestle, they're going, oh, my God, these guys are into this shit. You know, they really look like they're fighting. (laughs) So it was just (laughs) way more aggressive than entertaining, I guess. But it's a good blend. You needed to have entertainment, too. And I needed to learn to be more of an entertainer at that time. It took me a while. I got it, though. I learned how to strut eventually. (laughs) It seems like you probably got along well pretty good with Bill Dundee, then. Yeah. Yeah, he was all right. I mean, you know, just surviving. I mean, it's like I said when I said about being a shark. You don't become a shark in the wrestling in the in the wrestling business and in the dressing rooms until you're a seasoned veteran. And and my first started, they didn't consider you not green for the first five years, even though you're wrestling three hundred and probably eighty times a year. You didn't you didn't get past being green. I mean, I used it to my advantage with some really tough guys later on when I'd been working fifteen years. I'd go, I've only been working three years. I'm still green. <laughs> So I got out of I got out of trouble that way, but for me, you know. So, but Bill was um, he was the kind of guy that was trying to just hold his own for the spot, and he was still one of those guys that just wasn't real tall. I mean, you know, he was a shorter guy, and that that was hard to overcome. I mean, you know, and when I started in the business, I was considered small, and I was two hundred and thirty pounds. I mean, six foot. So that was. Big old men in this business, <laughs> burly like Missouri Mahler and Joe LaDuke and oh my God, Ox Baker, scare me to death. Johnny Valentine, I remember working with Johnny Valentine when I was just a baby, and I remember him raising his fist up. It looked like he was touching the light, and had me bent over the ropes, and he's going sell this. He hit me so hard. I go, you didn't have to tell me that. <laughs> you just killed me. I mean, you know, so education. The legendary guys in the business. And it's funny, 230 pounds is small. Nowadays, it would be, probably, you'd probably be considered yeah, one of the, no, I wouldn't say one of the bigger guys, but definitely on the bigger side of things. Well, yeah, it, you know, you, you change. I mean, when I was doing Skinner, I was probably 250. And then when I did Doink with Matt Warren, we were 270 at that time. So, I mean, you know, I did different sizes and weights and everything. But sometimes you don't get measured up by your physical side. is is your experience level, too. I mean, you know, so... I try to tell guys, and even guys that come to me that were really small, say, well, I want to get wrestling. I said, well, you're kind of small. So, oh, Rey Mysterio is small. I don't know how many Rey Mysterios you think there are. 
You know, I'm going to find one or two guys, but, you know, hold on. Don't get carried away. Anyway. Yeah, Ray is a uh, special talent. But you, you mentioned Skinner there for a second. Obviously, Doink, I'll, I'll want to get to in a second. But with Skinner and that character and everything else, how does Vince kind of bring you into the WWF at that point? Um, actually, that was for Jimmy Hart and Hulkster. I mean, Jimmy Hart saw me here in Tampa, and I wasn't warping, and he asked me why I went in the WWF, and I said, well, I really wasn't sure what I'd be. I mean, you know, it's, everybody's a character up there. I mean, you know, it's not, you know, it's one guy, it's a wrestler, that's Hulkster, so everybody else is something, big boss man. I mean, you know, there wasn't, but I sat around in the dressing room, we're all dressed. <laughs> I mean, you know, so I wasn't sure how that whole thing worked, and then I killed 15 alligators in the first harvest here in the state of Florida where we were allowed to kill alligators. And so I took a bunch of pieces of alligators. I took a hide, a skull, a paw. Um, and I took some other stuff up to Vince. And when I went to meet with him, I laid it on his desk. And I said, well, I just killed 15 alligators. I don't know if there's something I could do off of that. But anyway, so he just said, um, we'll go home and, get rid of that blonde beard, that blonde hair and, you know, let your hair grow out natural and um, do more of a beard and don't keep it cut clean, let it grow. And then a couple months later, I came back up and he introduced me to Skinner. It was funny because then he says to me, he goes, you see the movie Deliverance? And I go, yeah, I love that movie. And he goes, I want you to be one of those guys. Well, I'm thinking Burt Reynolds. I mean, you know, what deliverance am I going to be? I'm one of the fabulous ones. <laughs> I'm going to be Burt Reynolds. And I go, you want me to get a vest and bow and arrow or anything? He goes, oh, no, 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 no. You got the wrong guy. First of all, you remember the two guys in the woods with Ned Beatty? And the one guy says, hey, boy, you got a right pretty mouth. He goes, I want you to be one of those kind of guys. <laughs> it, it was it was tremendous. It was the most fun I ever had. I love being Skinner. I mean, my interviews went from zero to a hundred. Uh, on a regular interview, I couldn't put two words together. When I was Skinner, <laughs> I was in the painting the redneck out of the Everglades. I was, that was a piece of cake, and it was good. I mean, I was laughing because I thought I was even funny sometimes, so... I mean, then, then the work, the only thing about my work was I worked the first few matches I had. Vince pulled me aside and said, hey, you can't be doing a go-behind takedown. You're from the Everglades. You only know how to wrestle an alligator. Cut your wrestling down. You're out wrestling everybody. So I had to kind of like taper down my style a little bit. But, hey, it don't matter to me. Just pay me. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great point. I was actually going to ask that because uh, you know you had some great matches with Bret Hart. I definitely want to get to that in a second. But that look, you know, with the tobacco and spit on the opponent, I think a lot of it on TV translated really well because of the way Gorilla Monsoon always portrayed you when you would be in the ring and he would be saying how disgusted he was to look at you. You know, did you feel like that aspect of it with the tobacco and just made really, you know, the fans just were disgusted by the look of Skinner with that jaw just hanging out of his mouth? Well, I had to add a few things. I, mean, I added that part myself, and it was licorice. I had to, I had to, I, I had to, what happened was I realized how divided the country was. In the northeast part of the United States, from Detroit on, 
There isn't a babyface fan. You couldn't buy a babyface fan. All the fans are heel fans. When I come out of Skinner, they cheered me. Boston Gardens, they stood up. I'd be wrestling Ricky the Dragon, Steve Boulder, Kerry Von Eric, and they're going, Skinner, Skinner. So I had to turn them. And I knew I wasn't getting paid to get cheered. So when I did the licorice and let it run out of my mouth, and I'd spit on them when I walked by them. I mean, you know, I had a little bit of a turn, but then it kind of backfired on me because people started showing up dressed like me. And then it was okay every place else in the country. I mean, you know, easy to be the heel any place, but, you know, Philly, oh, that's a rough crowd. And when you came out, I mean, I can remember coming out going, I'd give you anything for you all to boo me. <laughs> I mean, you know, this is this is not working the way, I mean, you know, and of course I still had a little entertainment value when I made moves. Sometimes I danced, and that didn't help because they liked that. So, anyway, but it was a fun character. It was, it was easy, just, you know, I was getting I was getting more mature at that time and started to feel the bumps and bruises and those rings and the WWF were unbelievably hard when I first went there. I don't know who built them, but I remember taking my first tackle and rolling out and rolling up under the ring to see who put it together. I wanted to see what the hell was that. I thought I'd hit the floor. So it got to be a point where I didn't, do as hard a matches, and I didn't have like the passion. I mean, you know, my flame for my passion faded from there. Then I went to WCW when Turner was given contracts, and guys that I've known for years were sitting like it's a civil war. You got the guys from Charlotte on one side of the dressing room, and then you got the guys from WWF on the other side of the dressing room. And then I'm going, oh, we all grew up together. Why are you guys like this? And said, so don't sit over there with those guys. And I'm going, what do you mean? I was just one of those guys. Okay, and I go sit with the Nasty Boys and Arn Anderson and Flair. Don't show me that guys. And I go sit with them and then Hulkster and Randy Savage and my really close friends. They go, don't sit with those guys. And I'm going, what are you guys talking about? I'm missing something here. So, anyway, it was time. But that, that time you were in the WWF, you know, a lot of those guys, like you said, were in WCW at that point when you got there. But that WWF roster was like – unbelievably deep with a who's who of, you know, the, the Hall of Famers and world champions and great workers and guys with amazing bodies and whether it's, you know, Flair or Brett or Hogan or Savage. It was so many. It was basically somebody for everybody. But, you know, you said Vince told you not to do the single leg takedowns, but I think that your style is kind of like that of a chameleon because you really could work with anybody you know, whether it's a Kerry Von Erich or Ricky Steamboat, but did you really, were you able to adapt to whoever they put you with in the WWF? Because there was a lot of cartoony guys, but the gimmicks kind of played off each other once you got into the ring. Well, I was able to adapt because it is all changing. And we were changing it. I mean, you know, I was a part of the change. I was a 17-year vet when I went to the WWF and been in every territory, 15 different countries wrestling Guatemala, fought for my life in Puerto Rico. I've been through everything. And from the very beginning of the matches to the end, they were main events in all the regionalized territories. I mean, you could be in the opening match, it would be me and Kerry Von Eric. And we'd have done the same thing in Dallas one time, but it would have been just me and him on a main event. You know, so they were great matches. I mean, you know, it was easy. Most guys at that time, 
were just trying to figure out how could they last the longest and get the most out of it. So, you know, like you said, it was great talent, and it was great to be a part of that too because it, you never went. I never went to the ring going, oh god, I hate wrestling this guy. Nobody told him nothing when he went to school. <laughs> You know, I could expect something good, and it always was. Sometimes it was really funny, but sometimes it was good. <laughs> you really did see that trans- transformation of the WWF roster. I mean, from the Hogans and Savages and those uh, unbelievable, you know, just larger-than-life characters to them kind of portraying those more real-life guys, you know, like a Shawn Michaels and a Bret Hart, and you really saw the whole entire thing. But when that change is happening, what did you kind of think of the direction of the company? Because when Bret got handed, you know, the belt or he won the belt, you know, he obviously, uh, he kind of took it in his own direction, and there was more of an emphasis on uh, the wrestling aspect of uh, of the championship. But what was that like backstage at that point, that change in the uh, the top guys? Well, the top guys were bullies. I mean, you know, the top guys bullied Vince back then. Vince wasn't the same person he is now. Vince is totally in control now. Vince is feared when he walks down the hallway, everybody shudders. But back then, Vince shuddered. <laughs> it was he had a different different situation back then, whereas he wasn't as fully in command because the guys were so veterans, and he had little and no experience. So he was taking over a monster. And he did an awesome job. He took over a monster and created something really big and and still survived through it. <clears throat> I mean, I was there when he got attacked in dressing rooms and stuff, like Nails um, punched him in a dressing room and got on his Sergeant Slaughter pulled him off. I mean, you know, something like that. That would never happen nowadays. So it was a different world. And it, it had to be tamed. It had to be something that somebody tamed because you couldn't let those lunatics run it. It would be like letting inmates run the prison. And, I mean, you know, you can go back and just look at the list, and if you can't pick them out, next time we talk, I'll tell you who they were that was for the lunatics. So, anyway, so the nasty boys right in the middle of them, that group, so. <laughs> <laughs> Well, if you can, I mean, what what would you kind of sum up the WWF run uh, as Skinner and then, you know, moving into Doink? Like, what would you say your finest moment as Skinner was? Would it have been some of those matches with Brett or some of the, uh, you know, maybe those house shows, like you said, in Boston or in New York where the fans were kind of digging you and you had to turn them? Like, what's a, a key moment for you in that Skinner run? Well, to be honest, I mean, you know, nothing really stands out as something key. I mean, because it when you did it as much as I did, I mean, I've I've been asked a million times, what was your toughest match or what was your most memorable match? And I'm going, who did I wrestle last week? I mean, you know, it's there were so many opportunities and so many great times. I mean, you know, and, and as Skinner, I mean, you know, I was just playing a character. It was the first time I wasn't Steve Kern. It was the first time I wasn't, you know, trying to be myself and be a, a character at the same time. So it was a fun character, but you know, there was nothing that, you know, Bret Hart in the shootout and said, Oh, that was just a, you know, pay-per-view match, but you only have a limited amount of time when you worked in those days, you had to go out there and in six minutes, give them a 30 minute match. 
And when you're used to wrestling 20 to 30 minutes every night, sometimes it takes a little while to get the audience into what you're doing. And shortcutting it, to me, was just jamming it too full real quick. So I wish I had something that stood out better, but that's just the honest to God truth. I mean, you know, it wasn't like something. I wrestled a lot of important talent in my career and a lot of long matches and hours with Terry Funk as world champion, Flair as world champion, Dory Funk as world champion, Harley Race as a world champion, and going hour broadways six days a week straight here in Florida in July. I mean, you know, those are memorable times, but I couldn't tell you what happened in the match because one went right after the other. And it just kind of goes in a kind of more of a blur than, you know, oh, wow, I remember this match. I mean, people say to me, you remember that match you had? I'm going to look at them and go, you sure that was me? And they go, yeah. I said, okay, well, I don't want to admit to nothing because then they go, well, wait a minute, that wasn't you. <laughs> and there I am talking about what a great match it was. So I just go, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and as we start to as we start to wind it down, I just uh, got to ask, you know, because you mentioned not being able to remember all your great matches or maybe some of your favorite matches, but do you have a couple of favorite opponents that really stick out above the rest, like the, the best chemistry guys you were in the ring with? Yeah, I did. When I was younger, I, I loved wrestling a guy named Tony Charles. He was from Wales. He was a British guy, and they had such a great style. I learned a lot from him, and I liked wrestling Billy Robinson because of, I like to wrestle somebody that taught me in the ring. I didn't like to wrestle somebody that just was equal to me. I like to wrestle somebody far superior to me. I liked wrestling Jack and Jerry Briscoe when me and Mike Graham wrestled them. I mean, you know, they gave us wrestling lessons in the ring. Um, I loved wrestling Harley Race. He was probably one of the greatest world champions in my mind because he was a combination. He was a badass guy and, and, and he was a good talker and he was just a machine out there um, so those certain guys that stood out certain guys that were probably like anything else more impressive to me at the beginning and then later on in life I liked wrestling guys who were simple I've already had some I've had some of that thanks Anyway, so it was just wrestling guys, um, you know, that were more experienced and better than me, and that was pretty much everybody. So it made it easy when I what I did. So, but I mean, the the times that stood out were the times that were kind of like really important. Like when you knew you had to do an hour, and Eddie Graham standing up on the rail in Tampa, and it's already like ten o'clock, and you're going to eleven o'clock, and people are hot and ready to go home. If you could pull that off and walk back up that steps and get a pat on the back, the best compliment I could ever be paid was to walk into a dressing room and everybody come up to me and say, man, that was a hell of a match. That was probably the greatest high of any high is when your peers watched you and put you over as you came through the dressing room doors, patting you on the back and saying, man, that was great. I enjoyed that. So it's probably a good place. Well, that's, that's great. And we're, we'll end it right there because uh, we appreciate you diving deep. And this is, we get lost when we get an interview like you. And that's why I said that at the beginning, because you literally have done it all, seen it all. And we appreciate you sharing everything with us tonight. And uh, we just, we can't thank you enough. Steve Kern, thank you for, uh, for joining us this evening. 
Well, thanks, you guys, for having me on. And we'll do it again sometime. You know, it's hard to condense 44 years into a couple hours or an hour. So i got plenty of stories and plenty of history. If you guys get bored, you want to hear any more about wrestling, I tell good wrestling stories. Thanks for listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling, What the World is Downloading.